Hi there, everyone. It's Greg Campion here, host of Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. Thank you so much for joining us for episode number six of season three. Today's episode is a special one. We have brought together investment leaders from around our firm to share their thoughts today on what lies ahead in 2021. This year, we have titled our outlook, The Uneven Recovery for reasons that I think will become apparent to you during the conversation. My colleague, Dr. Christopher Smart, head of the Barings Investment Institute, moderated the following discussion, which includes Barings thought leaders from across public and private markets. A quick note before I turn it over to Christopher, one of our aims this year was to deliver this content to you in whichever format that you'd like to consume it. So you can listen to the audio conversation here, But if you'd like to watch the video or read the written conversation, you can also find those links at bearings.com. So with that, please enjoy our 2021 Outlook episode, The Uneven Recovery. Welcome, I'm Christopher Smart, head of the Bearings Investment Institute, here to host Bearings Investment Outlook for 2021. We assemble today to take stock of a year unlike anything any of us has ever seen, and peer into a future that looks maybe as murky as ever. I think we can all agree after one of the longest expansions on record, the global economy suffered a shock uh, that we haven't seen before, maybe short of wartime, but also a synchronized government response that defied most expectations. Looking at public and private markets as the year closes, most investors are trying to get a handle on the recovery And it looks real and durable, barring a severe worsening of the global pandemic, but it also looks uneven, and in some cases, quite unpredictable. So to help us make sense of it all, I am delighted to be joined by some of my favorite Bearings colleagues who invest across the spectrum in equities, fixed income, real estate, and private equity to hear their hopes and fears for 2021. And while we would normally assemble around a common table at our Charlotte headquarters this year, Our roundtable is electronic, but I am sure no less engaging. We have with us today Ricardo Adrogue, Head of Global Sovereign Debt and Currencies, Martin Horn, Head of Global Public Fixed Income, Hadir Cooper, Global Head of Equities, Mina Pajeko-Nazemi, Managing Director of Private Equity, and John Ockerbloom, Head of U.S. Real Estate Equity. Welcome, everybody. We all have a lot to cover in a very short period of time, and I'm especially eager to hear how you're all thinking about the enduring changes we see in what we call the the new normal when the pandemic recedes. But let me start with a sense of where we are in the bounce and why we're looking at an uneven recovery. Uh, We've had this unprecedented shock and an unprecedented response to the shock. Ricardo, let me start with you. As the global head of sovereign debt and currencies, how are, are you worried that governments will take their foot off the pedal too soon? And how is that going to affect the outlook for the companies and countries uh, in which you invest? Well, thank you, Christopher. Thank you, everyone. Uh, the short answer is yes. I think the biggest risk from a government perspective is that governments decide that they have done enough. And the main reason that I say that is that uh, debt, uh, global debt has continued to go up uh, from before the pandemic and has only skyrocketed or has gone up quite a bit because of the pandemic. So I perceive that there will be a lot of pressure from population around the world for governments to step back and say, we have done enough, let's stop issuing more debt. 
Uh, with that, if if they do step back, then the recovery could uh, become less strong into next year. Uh, but that, to me, is the biggest risk that we face from a sovereign perspective. Well, the flood of capital into the system may have been a rising tide that has lifted most boats, but surely investors can't count on such government support continuing forever. Martin, from your perspective uh, as head of global fixed income, are you anticipating a string of defaults and bankruptcies in 2021? And if so, how do you navigate through that? Yeah, I think you will get defaults as we stretch into 21. We've got to remember we're only in the mid-stage of the pandemic disruption to all of our economies right now. Um, and whilst there's a vaccine runway that we can start to put analytics around, it's still very uncertain as to when that specifically will mean consumers move back to normal consumption patterns. I think to sort of put numbers around that, um, the default um, expectations when we moved into March range from anywhere from seven and a half to 25% or a quarter of the market, which basically said no one knew because we were sitting in March with that sort of vacuum of information. We'd never been here before. And so people were frankly guessing. And as we sit here now um, towards the end of the year, actually in most of the high yield market by value, it's, it's less than five and the range is two to 5%, depending on which market you're looking at in terms of where defaults actually landed. I think that probably is a reference point to what you could expect in terms of the ranges from these markets going in the next year. Um, but generally speaking, it's been more measured because markets have been open. People have been willing to capitalise these businesses um, and central bank support was, was absolutely key to this. Um, as we think about it, as we try and navigate our way around those default situations, um, given that we're still in an uncertain environment, you've just got to ask yourself, would I own this business um, at the price I can buy its debt? Would I be prepared to fund that business through um, what could be an extended period of, of disruption, depending on which market it is? And, and essentially, does that business have a long-term future? And if you can answer all three of those questions and you can invest in things like secured debt, actually, on most situations, you're going to end up in a relatively good place. But it really is the time to question all your assumptions constantly as data points change, as, as horizons change, and as the, as the headlines around this very uncertain environment still that we're living in um, uh, gives you more information. So I know, Ricardo, let me go back to you because I know you and your team are questioning your assumptions all the time. Uh, will we see a wave of sovereign defaults in emerging markets next year? So we have seen some defaults already on the emerging market side. Uh, mostly countries, uh, there, there's two types of countries that have defaulted. Those that are really running into difficulties, that really are unable to pay their debt. Uh, so like Lebanon is one of them. Uh, and then there's countries that have chosen to default. Uh, the type of defaults that we are concerned about are the ones that, of those countries that preemptively default, which is a new push that the international financial organizations are are trumpeting or they are trying to push these countries to um, that may run into difficulties to preemptively renegotiate their debt. Uh, we think that that's a very slippery slope that creates um, uncertainty about the debt contract that these countries have signed. Um, it could be very detrimental to emerging market funding, especially for the lower rated countries, the single B countries, 
typically the smaller countries, typically the countries that depend on foreign financing, typically uh, countries in Africa and some in Latin America. Uh, those are the countries that, while in principle they should be able to get financing, given how easy financing is globally, especially for sovereigns, but um, because of the questioning of the debt contracts, because of this preemptive restructuring that some international financial institutions are promoting, uh, that creates that uncertainty and that possibility of default. Now, we think it's going to be probably in the 5% range, uh, maybe 7% range of the full index. We have had defaults in there around 3% so far in 2020. So turning to equity markets, which have to some degree also benefited from the capital awash in the system, we're witnessing perhaps more divergence from country to country and sector to sector in 2020 than we've seen in recent years, with the NASDAQ posting an extraordinary year to date, for instance, while many European markets remain deeply in the red. Pedir, as head of global equities at Bearings, what do you think the market has gotten right here and where have the fundamentals possibly diverged from the prices? Although market leadership so far throughout the pandemic has been actually narrow and concentrated on tech and companies with uh, stable business models, tech performance, in our view, is backed by really strong fundamentals. In the short term, it's quite easy to see. Tech spend had to go up for companies to support, for example, working from home, or uh, more uh, online consumption or um, entertainment, because there's a lot of entertainment that's happening from home, for example. But actually, the situation isn't just about the now, it's about longer term trends, where those shifts we think are going to remain, and tech spend will therefore continue to increase, um, mainly in order for those companies to improve their efficiencies. For example, public cloud, and um, and continued movement to more to online. So even though the leadership in the markets in the short term can change, and we expect some of that to change to reflect potential future earnings as we get into a, a recovery path, actually the more exposed to, um, part of the market to cyclical recovery will show that in the short term, but the market, the part of the market that should perform well and continue over the long term is that part of the market which is exposed to those particular secular trends. So another part of the world that seems to have ample access to capital are private investment markets. And Mina, as an investor in the private equity space, how do you answer concerns that we've got too much money chasing too few returns? Yeah, there's been a lot of headline numbers in the private markets. Um, in the last couple of years, there's been about $800 billion raised on an annual basis in the private markets. But if you kind of take a look at where the data um, shows, 80% of that capital being raised is oriented to funds over a billion dollars. And in fact, um, if you kind of double click more into that, actually 60% of the capital raised is for funds above Five billion. So where the money is being raised is really with the larger end of the market, um, targeting much much bigger businesses. Where we spend our time, where I spent my career, is really on the smaller end, the lower middle market. And if you look at the fundraising capital, it only represents less than you know seven eight percent of the capital being raised. So where we find the best opportunities is in that lower end of the market where there has been growth, but not at the same volumes and same levels as the as a large end of the market. The other thing I would want to mention is 
um, in the, especially in the U.S., um, a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of private businesses. I think the statistic out there is that there's 27 um, million private businesses. Now, a lot of that is a lot of mom and pops. But if you're looking at smaller um, businesses that are investable from a private equity standpoint, we're talking about 200,000 um, businesses. And those are uh, businesses that um, can either be targets in themselves or they can be they could be part of a roll-up. So that is the segment of the market that we're excited about is that smaller end of the market where there's a there's a large investable universe, about 200,000 of them, um, of these businesses. And um, there are there's capital for them, but again, it's the, the lower middle market where it represents about 7% of the fundraising capital. So as I think about it as an investor, for those investors who are listening here, um, I would challenge you to think about where your exposure is. If you're investing in private equity and you're investing in that those $5 billion plus funds, you're just getting more exposure to the larger end of the market. And where you see the outsized returns is really in that smaller end of the market. Not to mention, you're investing in private equity to not to um, to have diversification. And so if you're investing in a lot of those bigger funds, there's a higher correlation to the public markets. So John, let me turn to you uh, as head of US real estate equity. I'm curious how COVID-19 has done to pricing in your market. We're all trying to get a sense of what the new world will look like and we'll come to that. But has it material, has the crisis materially impacted uh, risk-taking um, given the long-term buy and hold nature of, uh, of the asset class? So <clears throat> I think what I would say is that there's sort of two phenomena with respect to pricing that I would observe. One is kind of near-term and the other is, is more long-term. In the near-term, what we've seen and what I think what we'll continue to see uh, is increased volatility coupled with some measure of inertia. So uh, from a private transaction standpoint, transaction volume, as Mina mentioned, has been relatively slow uh, in the real estate world. If you look, two types of transactions get done. One, uh, those deals that price at the pre-COVID level, which is a relatively small subset of potential transactions. And then the other, where there is distress, again, a relatively small subset, but likely growing. Um, and, and But beyond that, the bid-ask spreads um, I think are proving to be too wide today for a lot of transaction volumes to flow. So pricing is difficult to discover. The volatility exists really in the public market. So for the public real estate companies, um, you've seen a dramatic decline in valuations um, uh, and also uh, real sensitivity um, to news. So in recent days, as hope for a vaccine has um, uh, increased, um, for example, I think you saw uh, New York office REITs go up by 30% um, in a day, um, which is obviously a pretty significant move after having had a significant dive uh, earlier in the year. So a lot of volatility, um, I think, uh, with respect to that, which I think will lead to a divergence of outcome, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But that's sort of the theme that we see for 21 is divergence of outcome. It's the time for active asset management because uh, the, the difference in results between the best and the okay uh, will be wider than maybe it's ever been. Let's move to that. Uh, there's obviously an intense focus on this rebound. How long is it going to last? How quickly will we get back to normal? Um, the last part of recoveries are always the hardest part, much harder than the first part. 
but there's a real question that investors are now asking, which is what will uh, getting back to normal mean and what has changed now permanently for us? And you know, I'll go back to you, John, because that's where I think the biggest focus is, which is um, uh, in real estate, uh, what we're all doing this outlook panel, uh, you know, on Zoom as we lead the rest of our lives on uh, on our laptops. Um, I know you get this question all the time, but how should investors think about commercial real estate when so much of the world has tasted the benefits of working from home and shopping online? And are there other sectors that look uh, permanently altered, like uh, maybe logistics or uh, residential properties? Sure. So with respect to, to um, commercial real estate, um, you know, the theme again, and what I would bring up is it's, it's going to be an alpha-oriented market. There is going to be the potential for outperformance in a way that we haven't seen uh, in the past several years. You know, I get the question a lot, you know, boy, is the, is the volatility or the, uh, you know, the challenges that the, that the industry is confronting, you know, does that, does that make you unsettled? What made me unsettled was the value that everything was pricing for 10 months ago. Um, the values were um, doing nothing but going up. Um, and it was very hard to distinguish between good assets and great assets from a performance standpoint because everything was working. I think as we turn the corner, there is going to be meaningfully greater opportunity for outperformance. Uh, again, I come back to a theme that I've talked about before in these contexts, which is the best assets remain the best. And the opportunity for active asset managers um, who can be very selective to outperform, um, I believe is going to be uh, great. From an office standpoint, um, I won't spend a lot of time prognosticating, but I will say we've surveyed our populations um, and the sentiment is very much that the office is a central point of their um, existence. Um, although uh, many see it more as a center for collaboration um, than as uh, an everyday uh, uh, as an everyday destination. So the office is going to change. What does that mean? I think what it means is that the very best offices that can adapt, that can provide clean building features, that can provide the kind of collaboration that I think um, is going to uh, be the order of the day on a look forward basis, um, will outperform. So that's where we're focused. Um, from a retail standpoint, um, retail is obviously very badly battered. Um, and I think justifiably so because there is a secular change ongoing in that world. However, um, we're already beginning to see green shirts among uh, retail real estate owner operators. Um, retailers are very innovative in terms of how do they utilize their physical locations. So as you see the multi-channel delivery method um, beginning to take hold, um, you know, I'm probably more bullish around retail than others. Um, you know, uh, well-located retail that is in a good population area, I think has a place, remains to be seen what it looks like as we look forward. And I think, you know, when you and I spoke a number of months ago, you were sort of saying that, in, ironically, the areas that have been hard, hit hardest are, in some ways, the easiest to predict, in the sense that you know, we, we know what a hotel is going to look like in a few years, we just don't know when they're going to fill back up again. Correct. And uh, yeah, I've said that a fair bit, that I know what a hotel will be two years from now, and that's a proxy for post-vaccine. Um, I can't tell you 100% what an office is two years from now or what a retail center is. Um, but I believe that there's a place for both of them. And I think that it's just ensuring that you are really selective in buying the best assets that are the most adaptable to the tastes and the needs that users have. 
So let me turn back to you, Martin. Uh, for corporates generally, there's enormous pressure on some firms to adjust business models, new technology, artificial intelligence, all kinds of tools to boost their efficiency. Um, but with the pandemic, there are also sectors like travel, like hotels, live entertainment that you know have suffered what may be a lasting blow. Um, if we can come back to the fixed uh, fixed income markets that you and your team look at, are you investing in some of these distressed firms on the basis that they will bounce back with the availability of a vaccine? Or do you think some of these trends are, are permanent? And how do you think the vaccine may permanently change um, your investable universe? Yeah, I think there's definitely what I call midterm and longer term or permanent in your language effects of all of this. I, we're all going to have to get ahead of a lot more granular. You know, there's a general assumption, um, which I, I would agree with, that the economic environment is, is going to be weaker on the other side of uh, the, the sort of vaccine solution. And, and really that stems from the fact that as one of the sort of semi or medium term impacts, governments are going to have to um, raise money to pay off some of what they've spent and um, companies are going to have to delever. And that's going to change CapEx profiles and investment profiles. And it has knock on effects on various industry. So that's kind of semi-permanent, but that you could almost regard that as a cycle moment. Um, when you, I think we've got to get granular about who's going to suffer as well, because um, uh, the truth of this pandemic is there's a lot of white-collar workers that are actually have been better off during this pandemic because they haven't gone on holiday. They've saved some money. There's unintended consequences of the pandemic that we've seen a lot more expenditure on things like DIY and home um, expenditure. Um, because people's expenditure patterns have been shifted. And again, I think that is semi-permanent um, uh, or, or medium-term trend rather than necessarily something that, that stays the course. Um, but when you then move into the sort of permanency, you know, I agree with Hadir's comments about technology. Technology, uh, a lot of um, commentators have said, look, this has brought forward 20 years' worth of change into one. And um, whether it's 20 or 10 or whatever you sort of buy into, I think it would be foolish of us to believe that after a year's worth of this social experiment that we've had to go through, that we're just going to learn none of those lessons and just return to what we were. So, of course, as John alluded to, office footprints and our views of office footprints will, will change. That's going to have um, less obvious impacts. You know, if, if as you guys know, you had to make me wear a shirt and a a jacket for this this call. Um, uh, if you're working from home more often, I, I expect people will be. Then there's going to be less suits and business apparel um, will be permanently adjusted downwards. Uh, I would suggest and, and people's and there's certain sub trends that are not going to be so obvious to you. Business travel is an obvious one. You know, I'm, I've I've had two calls to Australia um, this week, and um, I expect um, the the view that we should just dial in rather than fly halfway around the world for some of these meetings to somewhat change. I would say not permanently. I think investors will still want to look you in the eyes. Um, I think there will still be a level of business travel, but we're all going to have to adjust to the granularity of all these trends. And I think some of them um, we can predict, some of them will be less clear. I do think there will be big bounce backs in certain industries though. I do think that we're desperate to go on a really good holiday next year. I certainly am. And if uh, with the right product proposition at the end of that, 
I think you will see very much a hockey stick recovery. You know, I, I think that, you know, things like we can argue that if the big cinema chains have not had any content and the studios have held them back and all of a sudden they're going to release uh, two years worth of blockbusters in a 12-month period and we're all desperate to get out of the house, that as long as we feel comfortable in the environment that you could see, again, hockey stick-like recoveries in, in, those, uh, in those types of entertainment complexes because we're just desperate to be anywhere but in our homes. And so I think there will be permanent, semi-permanent. It's all about granularity. And it's going to be all about doing lots of drains up analysis on these trends because not all of them will be obvious today. Some of them will become apparent over the next six, 12, nine months. So you think some of us will have to go from one suit to two suits in the, in the, perm- in the new world? Yeah, I, I, I just stocked up on uh, Hawaiian shirts because I feel like that's the way forward. So, uh, Ricardo, you know, Martin covers an enormous world. Uh, in some sense, you, from an emerging markets perspective, cover a much more diverse um, investable universe. Where do you see the permanent impacts, uh, whether on sovereigns or uh, corporate uh, debt, that you're looking for? So I would say that uh, from a sovereign perspective, and talking globally, um, the social implications of the pandemic are still to be seen. Um, I would compare the pandemic to a big major crisis or a big war. On the back of those, they tend to be, in, in many, many cases, there's changes that take place in different countries, um, and most of them are unpredictable. Um, and that is happening basically across the world, not just in emerging markets. Uh, we have social demonstrations, or we have had and continue to have in the U.S., um, in, and at the end of the day, the, the big change is if it changes the structure of the economy and causes a reassignment of resources across the individuals that form that society. Um, and so as an investor, and a, a sovereign investor, basically, especially those countries that are more exposed to that, the possibility of a rejuggling of the property rights and the lack of payment of their debt, those are the ones that are uh, where we're focusing most of our energies. Um, as I said, on top of that, the big risk is that the international community has become more willing to uh, to sort of help those countries to restructure the debt. And so that creates the willingness to pay have become significantly more important in assessing. Now, from a, a type of um, reforms that these societies could have is very difficult to predict. And so you need to be monitoring each one of the countries. Um, We have uh, important repercussions in Thailand, for example, with demonstrations over the past weeks. Uh, We had demonstrations in Peru that caused the life, not the life, but the the presidency uh, in Peru. Uh, So we have tons of these changes that potentially, and so far they have political changes without economic implications for those countries, but some others will have economic implications. So, Hadir, let me turn to you because one of the enduring uh, changes that was already underway well before this pandemic has been an increasing focus of investors on environmental, social, and governance issues in the ways in which they invest. Um, It seems that at least some of these political changes that Ricardo describes have uh, accelerated some of those concerns, and maybe even the pandemic has as well. What, what is your thought on that? 
I think for certain, the pandemic has um, thrown into life the differences that you have your expectations uh, when you are, whichever country you are in, in terms of your um, social issues, for example. But let's just not forget that investors themselves are becoming increasingly aware that the positive changes that can happen from them actually taking into consideration um, ESNG issues in terms of affecting significant global concern um, situations, whether it is climate change, whether it is human rights, etc. And I think ESG, therefore, analysis and incorporation of ESG is becoming increasingly integral role in fundamentally understanding a company or an issuer and in or a country and in uh, fundamentally understanding the potential risks that you face when you are investing in that particular uh, opportunity or the actual opportunity that lies ahead of you. And what is becoming more and more um, clear is that regulation is going this way. Your clients are asking you to do more in terms of investing. So you're not only investing for financial return, although that's still paramount, but also for having the right outcomes in terms of society, in terms of the climate, in terms of fair play. So for us, it's really thinking about ESG issues is just a way of um, understanding issuers holistically, expanding uh, our investment horizon going forward. It becomes easier to understand a company when you also analyze its credentials in terms of um, ESNG and dynamically understand where the company is heading to. Because the more the company improves its ESG practices, the more its disclosures are increasing, the better, the easier it is to understand that company and the more it makes itself stand out and become a part of your portfolio compared to uh, companies and even countries that don't take that into account. So ESG is, uh, is constantly evolving, but it is constantly going to shape how we invest in the future. And it's not just for corporates, it's also in the sovereign side. Um, the pace at which uh, ESG for sovereigns have been developing is, breath is breathtaking. Um, there's uh, the need for engagement with sovereigns, the need of, of understanding how sustainable the different policies are. Uh, there's a whole area of environment that has come to the fore with um, Brazilian forests in the Amazon and other places like Ethiopian uh, droughts. Um, so there's a lot of issues that are coming up and uh, the expectation for us investors to engage with the different governments to move the, a positive ESG agenda. So when you are analyzing um, companies' credentials in terms of ESG, one thing is to think of the, about it, um, how it stands today. What is really important to unlocking value for our investors, and we look issuer per issuer, company by company, that's what we do, is to um, try and influence ESG practices for those companies. And that also comes with engagement. So what Ricardo was talking about happens all the time. When you engage with companies, you're engaging with them to either improve their practices, that could be on diversity and inclusion, it could be on environmental footprint, it could be on recyclability, it could be on all sorts of issues, it could be about whether they have an existence of a whistleblower program or not. But you're also asking them to increase their disclosure because if you if they increase their disclosure, you're able to compare between different companies uh, in a much more equitable way. And this is my kind of view about what's happening with regulation is going to try and make sure that that 
is something that in the future develops. So you are able to um, think of ESG issues in the same way that you think of other fundamental analysis, such as companies, cash, company earnings, cash flows, etc. And it's not just that the pandemic has led to this dramatic reduction in business travel, uh, contributing maybe to better carbon footprints for companies. Are you seeing in the firms that you look at, Hadir, that the shock uh, of the shock of the pandemic, the rethinking of business models is a moment where companies are incorporating more of these concerns in what they do? Yes, I think actually in answer to both my questions, the answer is the pandemic is one of those boundary conditions that you think about when you're thinking about companies, what that, that would require you to rethink everything that you have been doing so far. And I think this is one of the themes that's come through in everybody's conversation so far. If you are um, looking to how to conserve your cash flow, this is one of the things that came under uh, intense pressure at the start of the pandemic. Business travel is one of them, but also where you invest your technology money, also, how do you look after your employees in order to allow for um, um, human rights and labor rights to be more equitable? And the pandemic, all the pandemic um, is all all of the bad things that the pandemic is causing. One of the good things that might come out of it is this refocus on issues that are more than just financial, even though financial is very important. I think what's super interesting about what Gadir just mentioned is that most of the people think about ESG as they're just doing good um, and they're doing it for impact um, and a social benefit. But what Gadir is clearly showing you is that it's an opportunity to enhance returns and also mitigate risk. And I think that is um, a fundamental shift um, in the investor's outlook. On, on what really ESG is. This is how we think about really mitigating risk and generating outsized return. So Mina, let me pick up on that because in your world, I know you've been spending a lot of time thinking about how diversity in a management team leads to outcomes. And we're now in a world where there's intense political focus on inequality, on diversity. How do you think these issues affect um, the investments that you make? And are there better ways to address these divides through the investments that we're making? Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually going to tie in something that Ricardo talked about, which is a lot of the political unrest. It, that has occurred here in our country as well, not just in places like Peru, but places here, right? And if you think about it, um, I'm not shocked. I'm not shocked that we have that you know, unrest here in the United States. And if you think about what is at the root of it is, is really the wealth gap. Um, look at the data, and I'm going to kind of look at the data back in, in the early 90s. You know, black and brown communities, the median wealth was about $25,000 per family. Today, it's about the same. Now, if you compare that to the median white family, back in the 90s, it was around $115,000 per family. Today, it's 175,000. So you've always had that disparity, right? The fact that you have certain communities who've um, benefited from you know, this technology boom, they've benefited from the housing boom. So today, when I look at the political unrest, it has to do with that wealth gap. And so 
if um, there's a lot of research out there, I think it was McKinsey who put out the research that they said, if you actually close that wealth gap in the next eight years, you would actually grow GDP six to 8%. So that's meaningful. Um, so as so as I take it back to your question, um, Christopher, on how we think about it from a private equity investing, we think that there's opportunity to invest with women in diverse owned enterprises. Um, the NAIC came out with some research in the last year, which showed data for in private equity, investing with women in diverse enterprises over the last 18 years. Those managers and those out, um, opportunities have outperformed their peers. And in fact, They've not only outperformed their peers, but they've outperformed the upper quartile benchmark by 170 basis points. So circling it back to what Gadir was saying, we're not investing with women in diversity because it makes me feel good. We're doing it because we're generating outsized returns. So those investors who are ignoring the segment of the market are really leaving money on the table. And they're frankly not meeting their fiduciary duty by ignoring a segment of the market where there's been demonstrated outsized returns. And I just, I referenced this NEIC research. We actually here at Bearings, based on our own proprietary data, um, did our own research um, in the last 10 years, and we had the same exact conclusions. And so there's lots of elements um, that we can take into consideration um, for that. But when you kind of boil it down, we're, we're really mitigating risk and we're, and we're identifying opportunities that have been overlooked in the market. And these are issues, I think, as we've, as we've discussed, that reflects a lot of the political activism, the political turmoil, the political noise that uh, we see gaining ground around the world and gets uh, reflected in controversial elections, but also in more specific debates around legislation on each of these issues, the environment, the social, and even some of the governance issues as well. And that, I think, is why we have entitled our roundtable uh, and our outlook for 2021, the uneven recovery, um, because both in, in public markets and private markets, in different geographies, in uh, developed countries and emerging countries, uh, as you can see, uh, my colleagues are seeing a world that is returning to normal, but uh, as long you know, as long as the pandemic risks abate, growth is going to continue, and investments will deliver returns. But it is not all sweetness and light. Uh, there are pockets of great promise and areas that are going to struggle for the foreseeable future. And in a world where, as we've just heard, tumultuous politics, uh, technological innovation, and evolving social values continue. The opportunities in this next cycle are going to be very different from those in the last one. Uh, and as you can tell, my colleagues are not only thinking very deeply about these issues, they are also watching very closely how the investment opportunities are evolving around them, uh, which leaves me only to, to thank them for joining us uh, today and hope that we'll have a chance to come back to them in the weeks and months ahead to revisit uh, some of these questions. For our viewers and listeners today, we hope that this uh, conversation helps inform your own thinking as you navigate the year ahead. Please do reach out to your contact at Bearings if we can be of any further assistance or if you'd like to continue the conversation. Thanks very much and all the best for 2021. Thanks for listening to episode number six of season three of Streaming Income. 
Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.